Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the essential role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. Welcome to today's episode of Design Your Life. Today I catch up with the fantastic facade designer and my good mate, Troy Donovan. Tune in as we chat about the niche industry of facade design, appropriating techniques from automotive production to architecture, and why we might see a lot less fully glass facade buildings in the future. Hey Troy, welcome to Design Your Life. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's so cool to have you here in our Sydney studio. We've met about a year ago doing kettlebells down in Bondi uh, with really good friend Dion Hortzmans. And you've known him longer than I have. M- amazing sculptor, incredible guy, so generous and goddamn fit as well. He's he looks specimen. the business. Huh? Yeah, he's a specimen. Oh my God. I mean, I remember the first session going there. I wasn't feeling so good about my body. <laughs> he was like walking around with no top on, and I was just like, oh, for Jesus. I wonder how long it'll be before I've taken my top off. A year later, I still haven't taken my top off. Yeah, I, um, I actively participate in community service by not taking my shirt off. <laughs> well, he videos every session too, so that it makes it even harder to, like, I'm not ready, but my God, it's changed my life. It really has. I've trained all kinds of things over the years and I stop and start and, you know, mm. leave huge kind of gaps of not doing anything, but feeling really bad about not doing anything. But finding kettlebells and the, the, the wonderful bunch of guys that come together, mm. you know, four times a week, this little cul-de-sac in Bondi, outside, rain, hail, shine as don't, we say. don't give the address yeah oh no i won't i won't how did you get into that um so i've known dion for a few years sort of through instagram but through a involvement on a project he was doing a big sculpture public sculpture in melbourne mm-hmm. called supersonic oh the yellow one the big yellow one yeah, yeah. and awesome. it needed um some glass to be mounted onto it so it could act as a canopy as well mm-hmm and so I was working as a fa- in a facade engineering team yep. here in Sydney and, um, you know, was asked to help detail that by the architecture practice that were working on the project. And just years later, I was posting on Instagram and said, hey, Dion, here's some of the sketches behind that process or mm-hmm. this is how it developed. And, and just through that, um, remained in touch. So it's not like me when he, he I bought a sculpture uh, off of a small one uh, around Christmas last year, um, and, he's, and I and I we were working out how to get it to me. Like, does he post it, whatever? And he said, "Ah, I'll bring it around. I'll bring it around." You know, I was like, "I'll bring it around." So he turns up in this American pickup truck, yeah. tiny shorts, boots, and no top on, and I'm like, "Jesus Christ! Look at this guy!" <laughs> and he and he, he kind of stuck it on my wall. Within seconds, it was done, and he's like you know, hey, should, should you have a chat? Should you have a coffee and whatever? And then he goes, then I said to him, look, I don't say this to guys often, but what the hell do you do for exercise? And he said, ah, kettlebells. You should come down. And I'm like, 
you know, it, I think it, it, I think it was like a few weeks or maybe a couple of months later. I kind of, I, I kind of thought at the time, there's no way I'm going to do that. But it, yeah, it just changed my life, as I said, for the better, and it just gives you energy. Mm. It gives yeah. you something to do, th you know, three or four times a week on a regular basis, which doesn't take a huge amount of. It's not complicated, apart from obviously most of us are dyslexic, so it's. Um, Working out the numbers is, is hard. Yeah. <laughs> Every time is like, no, it's four of those, three of those. How many rounds have we done? We don't know. Uh, is it six? Um, hey, Bruce, you didn't start this clock. Things like that. But um, It's not that um, as well. I've had too many coffees, I think. It's not that like women aren't invited to it. It's just it is a, just a group of guys. Oh, I'm glad you said that because it's definitely not a sexist no, event. No, but uh, for me it was um, to have contact with a group of guys that are outside of my industry yeah i i don't have a lot to do with criminal lawyers but we have one <laughs> and um oh he's awesome he's got the best stories yeah uh he changes names for privacy reasons but um yeah d yeah just having that thing that becomes a routine it, it it's never easy the as you improve you just increase the weight yeah so it's not that it's always hard which is a great part about it that it's it's um it's always a challenge and just committing to it to do it is is the biggest part yeah i mean the feeling i think this is important we should and we're kind of dwelling on it but it, it is how we connected yeah. and it is how it, it, it this is about designing your life so we'll talk about your career at the very end <laughs> <laughs> but we'll talk about just i think it's so important just to kind of i think so many people do this in life though they kind of try things stop you know, put mm. on weight or feel stressed or whatever. Yeah. And I, I kind of was always envious of people that are professional athletes who, who from the moment they're born or have been exercising, that's they mm. do it religiously, you know. Whereas people like us who have a career and a family, etc., exercise is often kind of a sneaky little moment that you get to cram into your day if you're lucky because <laughs> you're so busy. But it's what makes a massive difference to your life in terms of your general mental well-being and your and how you feel and just chatting to other guys mm. um yeah not that we chat in huge amounts because we're all huffing and puffing but it does bring together a whole bunch of mixture of people and and sharing kind of you know what's going on in their life or not just having a laugh um and it doesn't cost anything apart from the effort that's right yeah that's know? great yeah the benefits are huge right yeah no i so committed to it january last year yeah and um, did four times a week, yep. rain, hail or shine, and not an injury all year through just having uh, coaching at the right time yeah. and having a group of people that are looking out for each other yeah. and, and not scared to call out when you need to change your technique or put a bit more effort in. Exactly. And I think that, yeah. Well, no, I, I, I put a lot of effort into it and... and um, I'm relatively strong, but my back over the over the past has kind of has gone out a lot. Yep. But whereas this, since I've been doing this, it has never gone out. Mm. You know, you tried things like um, all kinds of like weightlifting and all kinds of exercise and things like that. That kind of in a gym, it's not to say the gyms aren't great; they can be, you know. But just being outside, I think it, it does make. We've seen foxes, we've seen owls, we've seen lightning. Yeah, who would have Hail. thought you'd see a fox in Bondi? <laughs> yeah. That was insane. And it's, it's kind of animalistic in a way in itself, isn't it? Like you just feel like you're at one with nature, mm. just lifting a lump of 
metal. Repetitively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Well, we're going to continue doing that. Um, well, you've just moved to back to New Zealand, right? I have, yeah. So family and I are, are back in New Zealand, but um, coming back um, every month for a week for, for work. Not just for kettlebells? Actually, it's all <laughs> about the kettlebells. But you're going to start your own your own team over there. We have. We've got. Uh, I'm in a rural area, so there's actual farmers for the farmers carry. And uh, <laughs> are they kettlebells or sheep? What are you What are you carrying around there? Yeah, one guy had to excuse himself uh, because he was going deer hunting, but that's okay. They were successful. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's um, people who are working on wineries or. Um, farmers and it's just guys from the neighborhood really and exactly the same motivation as the team here yeah and yeah just wanting to do something for themselves that's beneficial to their strength fitness yeah and well-being yeah yeah well luca came a couple of times but he wimped out i think he's didn't he's not so good at that kind of stamina training he's kind of more nimble sporty soccer, soccer player, player yeah. you know what i mean i hear you do you know what i mean so it's not for the Faint-hearted. Um, so, you are a facade designer, facade architect, um, which is really cool because I never even knew what that was for a while, um, and a lot of people don't. A lot of people just think you know an architect does the whole thing, and the building's the building, and what it looks like is kind of cool, or they don't even sometimes notice it. But facades over the years are becoming far more expressive, far more engineered, far more interesting um which is super cool and it was really cool when we're training to find out that that's what you did and it's like wow that's cool let's let's have a chat about on the podcast and so here we are a year later (laughs) a bit late but um we're we're here today to talk about it and you're founder of a company called prism facades no not a founder and not a facade architect so i'm a facade designer and so i know it says that although i studied architecture i'm um uh, principal in a facade engineering and design practice mm-hmm. called Prism, and so I joined uh, Prism about three years after it had started. So okay. I was working in an architectural practice in Sydney, um, working on the Sydney Light Rail project yep. through the the CBD, mm. and then um, colleagues that I used to work with founded Prism, and then mm. and then I joined. So oh, so you weren't doing facades before. I was, I was, oh. uh, yeah, but a little bit before. So in my career, I was lucky enough to work on some unique projects, and that kind of led into into facades. So I had um, throughout my career a few touch points where people have offered me roles or um, thought that I'd be good for a good fit for their company, and um, presented opportunities, and that sort of all that string of pearls has all sort of led itself to, to yeah. what I'm doing now. So how long have you been at PRISM? Uh, about five years. I don't care for how I say that. Like, it sounds like PRISM. Yeah. Um, five years, cool. And you've obviously done, what, yeah, dozens, hundreds of facades. That's right. That so because we're, so we're not designing the facade in isolation. It's very much a collaboration with the architectural team. Yeah. So they are designing the whole building. Yeah. Uh, but we're the specialists that come in and help um, with material selections, the engineering of the facade and its performance, and um, and I'm 
the detailer. I really love getting in and understanding how connections are made. If an architect has a vision for a certain geometry, I might come in and help adapt certain fac- or existing facade systems to achieve that curvature or that, that angular geometry, or I might be researching materials and processes that aren't necessarily used for architecture that we can appropriate from automotive production or um, or wow. taking older traditional materials and processes and bringing them, um, bringing them re- reusing them in modern buildings or even when um, processes that don't exist. So our work at the Sydney Opera House is working with Grimshaw Architects on the design of a, um, a new balustrade system. All of that material was extruded bronze or brass extruded here in Sydney and now that expertise no longer oh, wow. is here anymore so um, you have to you know, these materials need to be engineered and procured so helping find across the world where the, that expertise now is and um, and wow. producing drawings and designs that can can uh, you reuse those materials because you can't have a building like as significant as the opera house that has extruded bronze on it and then start pulling that off and putting aluminium back on there oh jeez can you imagine that yeah so when you're working with architects on their vision of a building do you just take it to another level i mean or is it is it kind of i guess at times you're just purely kind of engineering it so it happens yeah, to I their vision. Other times, I guess you're just adding new ideas to evolve it. I wouldn't say taking it to another level. I would say taking it to another scale. So our drawings are more detailed than an architectural yeah. um, detail. So where an architect might draw it scales 1 to 10, 1 to 5, we are drawing 1 to 2, 1 to 1, sometimes 2 to 1 detail, so bigger than the actual thing, Yeah. so that you can... I'm waving my hands around and hitting the mic. But, yeah. Um, so we scale it up so that you can show a feature that's really minute, that's part of the manufacturing process. And what have you seen over the years in terms of how, how kind of facades have evolved? Because for me, I just see them getting more and more complex and more interesting. Is that what's happening? Yeah, there's, there's definitely that. There's... Um, Exploring different geometry, curved geometries, um, producing facades that are far more performative, so a lot of exterior shading, so that there's more environmental control. And um, so, two examples in Sydney would be that were interesting to see going up at the same time was uh, the Crown Tower by Wilkinson Ear at Brangaroo. Mm-hmm. Um, so tall, slender, tapering, curved yep. glass, and then... Um, we did the signage for that one. Yeah, cool. Mm. So not a project I was involved in, but sort of as an observer of the city, another one was the AMP um, QQT, which I think you also worked yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, we did the brand, naming, branding, and yep. all the marketing. Um, by 3XN, and so yep. there's, a, there's two totally different examples of facades. One achieves its performance through just the glass alone because there's that's the only filter to the environment. And then at QQT, there's a lot of express shading, and that's what's helping um, 
achieves the energy performance of the building is that exterior shaded elements or that grid across the glass helps so control solar control into yeah. the building. So did you work closely with Fred Holt on that? I, so that's a project I wasn't, um, I didn't work on. Our, our PRISM did, we were the yeah. certifying engineers for the manufacturer. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I know Fred, great yeah. guy. And uh, you've had him on the on the podcast, huh? Yeah, 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 absolutely. We got the wrong guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, since it's really interesting that have you? I've never seen a facade fall down. I mean, do they ever fall down? Do bits fall off? I was, I was when you walk around New York and or even down at Barangaroo, I often walk around kind of looking up, thinking, you know, what if something a screw fell off? It would kill me probably. Um, yep. I mean, it's a massive responsibility you guys have. Yeah, and there's a lot of people in the process as well, and there's um, a manufacturing process as well that's really critical to the success of the building, but also ensuring that you know yeah. things stay where they're supposed to. And is the facade, it's not just the facade, it's the structure as well. I mean, I guess at times, it's, is the structure the external of the building yep. as opposed to the core? Like, how does, how does it change? Yeah, some, some buildings do have structural elements outside of the facade, and, um, and they're another whole challenge in themselves because you have to, the facade has to be installed around those. But yeah, there's um, certain engineering principles or there's engineering approaches that, that do put the, an exoskeleton or um, hmm. a die grid on the outside of the building, and they, they, can be really efficient for super tall buildings. We don't see a lot of those um, in this part of the world, but yeah, some projects do have um, the structure on the outside, but that is very much the um, structural engineer. And so PRISM as a facade engineering practice, we're engineering the glass and the aluminium and the terracotta and the bricks and the, mm. the skin of the building, the, the fabric of the exterior. What's the most challenging project you've worked on? So the most challenging project I've worked on is the Australian War Memorial. It's a glass dome and bronze-clad uh, structure. And there again, it's, it's building on work that we've done with those materials before, but um, finding where the expertise is globally to manufacture the glass geometry that's required. So it's a, a dome is, you know, the, the top of a sphere. If you took a soccer ball and just cut the top off it, this design by Scott Carver has a, another inverted veil underneath that. So you've got um, a dome structure which is always in compression and then there's a veil underneath which is always in tension and just detailing that in a way that is always minimising. It would be really easy to do our job if you just made everything conservative and big. Mm. But when you're interested in aesthetics and detailing and yeah. architecture, we are always striving to minimise the amount of material and maximise the efficiency of a structure and connections. And how do you think about the how that building, for example, is going to be cleaned? Or thinking about QQT, um, like that's a, I see the guys up there, you know, parasending down and cleaning the windows and upside down and everything. It's really complex, isn't it? Yeah. So the, and you've got to think about every aspect of how they're going to be yeah. doing that in windy conditions, rain. Yeah, they're abseiling. If yeah. they were parasailing to clean oh. the building, would be. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. That would be another. Thank whole, you for whole the correction. Altogether. You're welcome. God, you're so. 
fucking detailed. <laughs> yeah, we, we do. We think about the... <laughs> you, we're thinking about the 50-year, the 100-year, the, the life of, of that element. Yeah. And well, let's talk about that because that's really interesting because obviously buildings in the past, in the Victorian era, were, I think, designed to be forever. Um, Modern-day buildings seem to have a much shorter lifespan. Um, is that is that the case? I yeah, mean, are you, like QQT, for example, would that be designed to be around for 30 years or is it around for 100 years or, or what? Like, Yeah, I think there's elements in the building that might require replacement, like the glass might not... We, Glass is interesting because it's a, a material that can last for hundreds of years and yet to make it more performative, we put coatings on it. Yeah. And that, that does great things for the building occupants. It means you don't need as much aircon. You're reducing yeah, yeah. the amount of energy coming through the glass. But you've now um, meant that that glass can no longer be recycled. Mm. So it, it can get crushed and used as road fill. Mm. So it, it is a, it, it's interesting that there's some elements that don't have an infinite life that could. But, um, yeah, I think QQT is here for a long time. Mm. There's, um, it's, you know, the world's biggest renovation project, I think. Yeah, most sustainable building. Yeah, with, you know, using an existing structure and adding to it. Yeah. And so Victorian buildings aren't about to get knocked down and replaced with a glass tower because of, you know, heritage concerns. and But original... Uh, commercial buildings they sort of fit in this interesting void where the land's really valuable but the is that architecture really that important it's some would say not as important as a heritage building that or a victorian piece of architecture so um do you they're right for repurposing so you can strip the exterior off add floors or extend and then re reinstall a new higher performance facade and, and those projects are always really interesting yeah it's interesting when you say that like um made me think of the empire state building which mm. in its time was a very modern building yep. now it would be a heritage building some yep. what's to decide when a building is <laughs> becomes heritage listed versus you know we're going to tear this down and build a, a more modern bigger one yeah i think uh or he, uh, empire state building has had windows replaced but you'd never know now mm -hmm. um I think that buildings need to go through a, a point of being unloved for then heritage to actually kick in. We need to do something about it. And so there's this sort of, this void. You know, there was a time where the 80s weren't cool. Yeah. And now it is. You need that sort of separation. Yeah, yeah. But then what, you rediscover how well designed it is? Because yeah. obviously... And the value of having that. You know, when the alternative is all glass you have to protect, you know, the heritage elements mm. or heritage buildings, I think. What's your favorite building in, in the uh, world? In the world. Um, I do like, probably my favorite uh, building in the world is the original AMP building at Circular Quay. Oh, yeah. And um, so it's an example of the international style, uh, but pretty unique to, in, in it. Was it Harry Seidler? No, no, I don't know who the original oh, architect was. Yeah. But the... Um, Only 26 story, I think. Okay, yeah. So, it, but it, it was... It was the, the biggest building in Australia at one time. That's right, yeah. And it was also the first building to go through the... Um, 
the borough of Sydney or the city of Sydney at the time, um, they had a, imposed a height limit. And so because it would be the first building to go through that height limit, it, the planning process took longer. So a AMP decided, we've never done curtain wall before. Let's do a mock-up, which is you, you build, in advance of the project, you build a small portion of it. Mm-hmm. And so fascinating thing about that project is the mock-up still exists. It's in North Sydney wow. and part of the um, Australian Catholic University. It's a little... It looks like a, um, you know, a, a site utility shed, or but the, there's portions of the facade, wow. st- and it, you know, it's still there. I used to live in the neighbourhood, and you can see when you go to it, you see the different glass options that they were looking at, and and the materials choices. That's neat. And so they built this um, while the planning process was going ahead to really understand it in more detail. So that's a, a function of our job that we help architects. Um, design the the mock-up and um, and help make and 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 pose questions that we're going to answer through that mock-up process to to see what decisions result in a better building mm. do you get a situation where I was thinking example <laughs> which sometimes when you've in the past gone to a printer for example that's old technology but the printer would naturally go I'd say hey can we do this no <laughs> okay, um, can we do this? No, no, we haven't done that. We can't do that. Do you get to that situation? And then, and then you actually go. Well, I've actually seen it somewhere. Let's try it. And then you do it. And then sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes they go, "Holy shit, that did work." Um, and it moves things on. Do you get that sometimes? I mean, do you, do you get, must get a lot all the time where, where people think there's no way you can do this, and then you yeah. kind of amaze people by pushing it through. Yeah, so it, initially it's working with an architect, you know, could we do this? And then we'll find precedents of how it's been done before and, and figure it out. And then we produce a whole lot of drawings and models and sometimes 3D prints and mock-ups so that when we uh, go to tender, we're we proving to the manufacturers it can be done. Mm. And then their job is to you know, whatever motivations they have to to make it easier to build or cheaper, they, they can do that. But at least we've drawn a line in the sand and said, this works. Mm. And and we do that through making... We are, our studio has a workshop, um, and, uh, and so we like cutting, gluing, screwing things together with actual hardware to, yep. to show and illustrate how a design can be realised. And do you... Are you working on projects just... In Australia or the, around the world? We're working on predominantly Australian projects, but mm-hmm. we have had projects in New Zealand, um, helping 3XN with a few in um, in Japan. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so we're, we're sort of we're slowly spreading out. But we're not trying to, to work on everything. No. We're just trying to work on the right projects. Yeah, yeah cool. Um, it's really, it's really, I think it's really interesting when you see a building... Um, and it, it stops you. You see a building and it stops you. Go, oh my god, look at that! It's mm. like when you see a car or something that's quite distinctive. It really stands out. Um, it's so cool that mm. people make that effort to create something which is original, and then work out how the hell to do it. Because it's you know, it's like having an idea for something's one thing, but realizing it can be phenomenally hard. Yeah, I like um, always thinking about revealing different levels of detail at different scales. So yeah. you might experience 
a building from as you're coming over the Harbour Bridge. Yeah. And then that mo- that day where you're in the neighbourhood and you see it at a different scale, so yeah. you see more detail. Yeah, yeah. And then that day where you actually go to the or walk past the building, and giving people an opportunity to experience it at different scales and different speeds. What is that building on the motorway when you are only ever going to drive past it versus the one that you're walking past as a pedestrian? Yeah. It's really interesting to me. I remember when, because back in us, back in England, you know, the Sydney or Australian Tourism Board was, you know, it's an icon. So it's such a distinctive building, but it it represents more mm. than opera. It represents Australia. Yep. It represents creativity and engineering and mm. personality and uniqueness. It's incredible. And like that amazing origin story as well and, yeah. and how it came to be and... And, um, and I've seen in a, um, I didn't know about this because, um, you know, it was before I was born, but they, they held lottos to fundraise for the um, opera house. So I've seen the big drum, a wooden drum that they drew oh, the really? lotto tickets out of. And, oh, cool. and that was part of the fundraising of wow. keeping the project moving. It felt to me like after that, because of all the, you know, the, the stuff that happened, or the the tough time that happened while that was being made. It felt to me like that was such a distinctive piece of architecture that maybe architects since then for a long time got really scared about doing anything unique. <laughs> <laughs> and now, but now, like we're in 2023, there's a lot of really interesting things happening. A lot of yeah. interesting architecture is really gaining momentum again. And um, I would say a lot of really great Australian architects mm-hmm. doing amazing work in Australia and then also abroad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's really incredible. So let's backtrack a bit. Um, you were born in Australia, although they have a very strange accent, and you moved to, you moved to New Zealand as a kid. Yeah. Um, so tell what happened there? Mum's um, a Kiwi, Dad's an Australian. Um, they met and married in New Zealand, but uh, yeah, I was born here. And then at 10 years old, we um, moved to New Zealand. Someone had to reverse the immigration at the time. It was a lot of Kiwis <laughs> coming here at that time. So in 87, moved to, um, moved to a provincial town in New Zealand and sort of grew up and had that Kiwi childhood and um, got to live on my grandparents' farm and you know do things that I don't think I ever would have had an opportunity to do growing up in suburban Australia. So, yeah, it was pretty unique experience, and now we're recreating that with uh, with our son. So we've just moved back to, yeah. to New Zealand. That's interesting. What was it like? It's, like what's um, the, what's, what was the difference? I mean, I guess you're living here in the city versus kind of rural. Yeah, you. I mean, any kid, any, you know, any 10-year-old has a, an idea of what death is. On a farm, it takes you about ten minutes to realise what it actually is. It's mm. you know, it's um, there's always something going wrong on a farm, and um, you know, with the care, you know, looking after livestock, or you know. Then you came back. So did you? How did you get into architecture? Um, I was working selling doorknobs in um, in New Zealand, and through that, started to design and work with architects to make hardware that would solve a problem, particular problem they had. So I went to uni to study industrial design and ah. switched 
after my first year. I did well enough uh, there. First of all, I wasn't even allowed into university. I had to wait until... And New Zealand has an age limit where if you're uh, like me, challenged, you, you could just apply after 22, I think it was. Right. And so I applied for design, did well enough in that. They, I got into architecture and um, got a job in an architectural practice in New Zealand from there, headed to New York. Um, and this is that sort of design your life thing. I wasn't, I was just bumblefucking my way through life. And it was people that saw something in me that gave me a job and yeah. um, through recommendation got a job in New York yeah. um, without them even you know, meeting me. It just a, a quick phone call, yes, we'll have you. Then um, a facade engineer in New York gave me a job so that I could go back to New Zealand and work for him. Yeah. This was you know, 12 years ago, working remotely on North American projects while living in New Zealand. And that's really got wow. me my, um, my foot into being a facade designer was wow. that, that sort of um, very short period of time. But yeah. um, And then came to Australia, moved back to Australia, I should say, moved back home yeah. in, in 2011 to work for a, um, a facade engineering practice here. Wow. That's super cool. You've also got your own Instagram account, like everyone does, but the Donnies, which has incredible number of people on there following you, like 334,000 followers, which is like, wow, I've got 8,000, so I'm very envious of you. Um, what's going on there? What, what's the interest? I know I said this to you when I first met you. You, you said I've got 300, something 300,000 followers. I'm going, what? How'd you get that? Um, but you, but you, and you do live um, uh, stream, live stream talks about facades, which is really cool. Um, there must be a massive interest in this, like apart from your good looks. But it, you know, the this the fascination. Are they are they all like architects that are following you, or, or, or who are they? Probably the most interesting thing is when you post a project and someone comments, "I installed that," ah. and so you look at their profile and it's all bass fishing and Bud Light. <laughs> I, that, that's funny those are the those are the real people yeah real not people and engineers so and architects the majority of um of followers are students architects and then there's the the really neat fringes where you get people that are either working in construction or just have a, a they're an illustrator and they like seeing a different way of drawing things but i think the the real motivation is i I'm not an academic, but I'm, I think I'm an educator. I love showing people how yeah. a university would never have me, but I like, so, and I don't need them because I, I can sh teach people how to do things sort of my way outside of that formal um, teaching but you, you have been to events and talked at unis and stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I did, um, I presented at uh, the Balage, which is an architecture school at in Delft University in the Netherlands last year with a friend, Scott Birchall. We both went over and, and presented a, a mm. lecture there. And so, yeah, the we he was talking about um, some architectural projects and I was sketching at the same time. So it was a very non-academic teaching method, but it was one that we stumbled across through doing a live session on Instagram. That's what I, th I thought was really cool, um, watching your live talk a few times. It's kind of cool. You go, oh, Vince has just come on. <laughs> like, then you can't get off. It's like, 
<laughs> but but seeing you talking very, it's kind of pretty low tech, and but you're talking about a high tech and engineering, and but you got a pencil or you got a what's it called a an app? Yeah, I'm using an iPod with a Apple pencil. Yeah, and, exactly. Oh, sorry, iPad and um. And it's and you're an, sketching. Yeah, I like I can walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> but, but sketching and talking at the same time while you're seeing comments, it's, there's a lot going on. But yeah, it's a, a low barrier to entry. It's really it's there's no opportunity to edit or polish it. All of your mistakes are captured. Yeah, I think and that's so, very real. And I think it's what appeals to people is that you're you're kind of in a way making it very humanistic and very. Um, creative by mm. sketching and talking very honestly and openly about it in a very kind of non-technical way if you like yeah and it's also um there's never a right answer because your viewers are all over the world so building envelopes they're not the same everywhere they have completely different thermal requirements some buildings in north america have ice forming on them you know we yeah. we don't have that and so there's always different points of view about what's the right way, and I'm not saying how to do it exactly. I just it's my approach, and I love it when I'm wrong because it's, you're very quick to find out that you've actually made a mistake. And yeah. um, but getting that reach and the point of view of people from all over the world is really interesting. Yeah, super cool. And then what what about um, does that create opportunities for you guys around the world? Yeah, I think the um, being invited to speak at universities is um, probably the, the the most beneficial part. And now there's a bit more of a link between the Donnies. It's not two people; <laughs> it's just me. But yeah. we'll get invited to uh, present or to pitch work, and we'll get asked at Prism, you know, which one of you is the Donnies. And yeah. so there's a little bit more, um, um, uh, you know, link between that thing that I do on Instagram and our work. And, and so, yeah, so business opportunities have come out of it. Yeah, and I guess architects looking at that, it inspires them to push mm. their kind of thinking on ideas. What do you think the future of facades is? is, is I mean, is, is technology is getting more and more incredible. Are we going to have AI design buildings? You know, we're gonna, are we going to, you know, um, print buildings of the scales that, that, you, that you're working on or like or, or are you already printing elements or parts of um, the facades that you're working on? Not specifically our projects but there are printed elements in facades that are um, solving a problem so rather than manufacturing a complex piece of metal mm -hmm. um, printing can uh, take its take its place. Will there be AI? Probably. And um, but then I think people will, you know, designers will just be the editors of that information, and you know anything that that speeds up the the process or you know it, I'm not sure about AI exactly in the form that we have it right now, but it can be used as um, an ideas generator. Mm -hmm. But I think the future of facades is ones that we are measuring more the carbon require you know the carbon within mm -hmm. um, all of the materials the operational carbon and I think get used to seeing buildings with a lot less glass in them mm -hmm. you know, we, as our um, ramping up of you know energy consumption the measurement of that so that buildings mm -hmm. are using less energy we will see um, 
a reduction in the amount of glass, but I don't think that's a bad thing. You go to any heritage space, you know, like yours here, and it's lovely, it's light-filled. It's probably the high ceilings, but it, it doesn't need to be a glass box to be good. Mm. Just kind of going back to where it was, in a way, in that regard. Mm, yeah, yeah. But those initial, those original buildings in the old days like that were... Wasn't it to do with taxes on the amount of glass or the amount of... Yeah, the, I think the amount of... Yeah, the there was a... Bigger win- the window, window the, tax. The window tax, but I th- that was probably pre-Victorian <laughs> times or, or public architecture. But at the time, I think architects at the time were building... Victorian buildings were as bigger pieces of glass as they could get in the constraints of, you know, they had to have columns as the facade. So um, we don't generally do that now. No. The, the columns are set in. Yeah. And then your, your, build, your building envelope is a thinner assembly that, that um, is in front of those. So we, we don't have that same constraint. But, yeah, I think um, a move towards a lot more opaque portions of facade and in that is a design opportunity to yeah absolutely to put the structure on the outside like we talked about earlier yeah and it's interesting the buildings i guess you design buildings to be to breathe you know to be air air flowing to use less energy um self-cleaning perhaps like a lot of what other things do they do well i mean the analogy that some architects make is that the skin of the building is the same as your own skin. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it is um, controlling moisture, heating, cooling. You know, there, there's kind of a the building skin, human skin kind mm. of analogy, which is interesting. Mm. And there's, there's, a, there's a, uh, a Japanese home builder called Sekisui House, and they have buildings that self-clean. Yeah. And it's incredible, just, the, just through the elements that they clean themselves. I mean, that's yeah, it's super cool. That's the, yeah, they're... A, I'm not sure if that technology was designed specifically for facades, but maybe it was appropriated and um, nanotechnology from another industry has been then applied to glass so that mm. yeah, they can have that performance. So what, what types of projects are you working on at the moment? Um, a mix of cultural, so um, important um, projects at our War Memorial, previously Sydney Opera House, a lot of commercial uh, developments, so new office towers, and sometimes we do high-end residential where um, an architect is not wanting to use a, a standard off-the-shelf system, so we'll help engineer glass and framing. and um, It's the projects that use unusual materials that really get me interested in, in, mm. in, in our work and um, finding new ways of using extruded terracotta brass and bronze and stainless steel in, in projects so that they do have that longevity. Mm-hmm. What's the future for you? Like, what are you, have you got any plans of how you want to evolve your career? Or are you just happy doing what you're doing today? It kind of, your career evolves as the world of architecture mm. and technology and building evolves, isn't it, I guess? I think the key thing is just continue working with and seek out those really interesting um, design teams and architects that are uh, interested in, in collaboration for their benefit, you know, of their own work or to to, mm. to push their own work. So it, it's, for me, it's always about the the people. And I ask my guests this every time, but do you think you've designed your life? I, I thought a bit about this over the last few weeks, and the ringing thing in my memory is you asked Paula 
um, oh, that question. Here we go. Yeah. And she and said no. Cheeky answer from her, that's for sure. And I have not designed my life. Not over. possible. That's what I think she said, wasn't it? <laughs> not possible. <laughs> I certainly haven't. I've been, I don't know how, but people throughout my career always saw something in me that I didn't see myself and have given me these opportunities to go to New York or to get my first architecture job. You know, a, a tutor, um, Nick Lico, gave me that opportunity. And then um, Nick Leahy, an architect in, in New York, um, moved me over there and another chap called Franz that gave me a job. And uh, so I've had these really neat touch points in my career. and uh, Just gone with it. And just gone with it, but um, I didn't design them myself, I think. I've just, a bumblefuck is a great way of describing <laughs> how I design my life. It just sort of, it's just happened. But mo the move back to New Zealand is a design, isn't it? True, yeah. I think that's probably, I've grown up enough to make my make a decision with, um, for the good of the family and, yeah, and have made that um, decision together with my wife and, um, yeah. It's interesting too that you've done that and you can work anywhere in the world from a rural situation. Yeah. I mean, you said like, I mean, is it 12 years ago you were there originally? Like, mm. yeah. is that before the internet or not? <laughs> no, clearly not. No, it was before Zoom um, yeah. and before video conferencing. And it's it's amazing how much work can get done when you, you use a time, a time difference to your advantage. So yeah, yeah it can be really beneficial. Troy, it's been fantastic catching up with you. Uh, thank you for coming in. Before we go, yeah, I'm, I really like being an educator, and, and you do too. So I've got a present for you. Oh, it's um, everyone's listening, but um, what I'm giving Vince is this, a first edition of the New York Standards Manual, New York Transit Authority Graphic Standards Manual. Holy cow! So I. Um, I supported the original Kickstarter. So I think you've ah. got this book in the smaller format. And this is... Um, no, I don't have that. Help me with the designer's name. Is it... Was uh, it was, wasn't it Pentagram? No. The uh, guys that left Pentagram, wasn't it? Uh, they they did the Kickstarter, but was it ah. Massimo? Oh, Vignelli. Yeah. So this is his... Oh, my God. And so in here are some of his original notes that were written. So they scanned... Um, the Kickstarter was scanning the original... Wow. Um, standards manual and in here are some of his handwritten notes about the edits that they would make holy cow so I had no idea it was that size it's huge it's not so it's yeah it's about four four hundred millimeter square book oh, you're and, a beautiful uh, man thank you yeah I know it's very kind but I thought what can I, I gotta give you my book or another baseball hat <laughs> but uh, I think it'll, it's a great home to have that here at Frost oh thank you man thanks Troy cheers Thanks for tuning into this episode of Design Your Life with my good mate and facade designer, Troy Donovan. Tune to the next episode where I'll be catching up with the architect and furniture designer, Daniel Bottom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.